If you would, in your Bible, please open with me uh, to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. This is the chapter that we were in last Sunday. So if you do not have a Bible with you today, I would encourage you to have one open. And so in the pew back in front of you is a Bible. And our passage this morning is found on page 1034. And just a quick review from last Sunday, I'd mentioned that here in chapter 12 that uh, this chapter and really chapters 12, 13, and 14 are another interlude within the letter of Revelation from the uh, blowing of the seventh trumpet to the uh, opening of the seven bowl judgments, which really begins in chapter 15 and, and going into chapter 16. And so this is an interlude period. And normally during these interludes within the letter of Revelation, as we have already seen in this letter in some of the past chapters, uh, these interludes give us more information. Sometimes it's more information about the time frame in which the uh, events are happening. And as we have progressed more and more into the letter of Revelation, we are uh, really in, as we've come to the seven uh, trumpets, as we've already covered those, that has brought us, uh, as I understand it, into the tribulation period, around that seven-year period of time that this scripture uh, talks about. Uh, but we are now in this interlude, and really chapters 13 and 14 are going to give us more information about what takes place during that tribulation, especially chapter 13, uh, Lord willing, we'll get to that next Sunday, and it's going to talk to us about the attacks of the Antichrist upon Christ's church. But here in chapter 12, chapter 12 really functions as a backstory to chapter 13. Chapter 12 is not so much about what's happening uh, during the days of the tribulation, but it is setting us up to know more about this Antichrist. Why is he so enraged against the church, against followers of Christ, and against Christ himself? And so last Sunday I took time and we looked at the two main characters in chapter 12, and that is uh, the woman and the dragon. And we learned that the woman depicts the people of God, both in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, and New Testament saints. Now, as I said last Sunday, there's not two peoples of God. There's not the Old Testament people and the New Testament people. Uh, there's only one people of God. And it is comprised of all the saints going all the way back to Adam and Eve and going all the way forward until the return of Christ because all people who are God's people are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so there's only one people of God. But we'll see here this morning why I make that distinction between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. But the woman is the people of God. The dragon is Satan. Uh, we are told this already in the chapter over in verse 9, I believe it is. And Satan is the arch enemy of God and of God's people. I mean, going all the way back to the very beginning of time when God created the heavens and the earth and put Adam and Eve in the garden, we see the serpent there already attacking God's people. And so the dragon is Satan, the arch enemy of God. And now as we come back to chapter 12 this morning, we're going to turn our attention really now to the to the verses of this chapter. We're going to get into really the action of these two characters. And let me just sum it up this way. If I could sum up this chapter, let me put it this way. The dragon, who is Satan, has repeatedly attacked the woman, who is the church, the people of God. 
He has repeatedly attacked the church in the past. He constantly attacks the church in the present. And he will continue to attack the church in the future. But every single time, Christ defends his church and Satan is defeated. In fact, if I, am, if I track along in this chapter rightly, there are eight defeats of Satan here in this chapter 12. Now, this is a message that the church needs to hear today. Because how many times do we as modern day Christians think that the church is losing the battle in her day? We hear of more young people leaving the church when they leave home. We hear of churches leaving the truth of God's word to embrace the lies of culture. And we hear of less number of people identifying themselves as Christians. Every so often these reports come out, these surveys come out, and and it's usually based upon the person's understanding of what a Christian is or what, how one becomes a Christian, but we see those numbers declining just decade after decade. And we can begin to think to ourselves, well, it seems like the church is losing this battle. And while all this can be discouraging, and while we wonder if there is any hope for the church today, Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is hope for the church today. It is true that Satan and his fellow angels, as we'll be introduced to more here in this chapter, that they are attacking the church and they are taking some captive. But he will not defeat the church because he cannot defeat the church. Because Christ, our King, will defend and will preserve His church in our generation, just as He has done in the previous generations, and He will continue to do so in all the generations ahead of us until He returns. And so I'm going to break this chapter up into three parts here this morning. In verses 4 to 16, we will see that the dragon waged war. That is in the past tense, waged wars. So I believe that the majority of this chapter is looking back to the past, to past attacks of Satan upon God's people. And then as we get to the end of this chapter, in in verse 17, we will see that the dragon wages war against God's people. That is in the present day. And then also there in verse 17, we will see that the dragon will wage war. That is in the future against God's people. So before we get into God's word this morning, let us pray. Oh God, how comforting it is to know that, that your son, our Savior, and our King is watching over his church because our hearts do grow discouraged, our, our hearts do grow faint. And Father, sometimes we do wonder if, there's, if, there, if there is hope, hope for the church, hope for the gospel. But God, I thank you that... It doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon our Savior, Jesus. And He is the Sovereign Lord. And He defends His church from all the attacks of our enemy. So God, I pray that as we go through this chapter this morning, God, let our hearts be encouraged. 
as we learn more from this chapter about what our enemy has done, that it would give us insight into what he is doing today, what he will do in the future. So God, encourage us in this day to continue to follow our Savior and our King. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so we begin here, and again, what I, what I see is the bulk of this chapter in verses 4 to 16, that the dragon waged war in the past tense. And we're going to see three times in the past, in these verses, in verses 4 to 16, we'll see three times in the past that Satan waged war against God's people. And here's how, here's how it breaks down. He waged war against Old Testament saints. We'll see that first. We'll see, secondly, that Satan waged war against Christ during his time here. And then thirdly, we'll see that Satan waged war against the early church. So three past attacks here. So let's look at these. First of all, here in verse 4. Let me read this for us. It says that his tail, so this is speaking of that dragon, that great red dragon who is Satan. It says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. Now let's just turn our attention to the first half of this, war, uh, of this verse, because in the first half of this verse, we see the dragon waging war against Old Testament saints. And why is he doing that? Why is he attacking these Old Testament saints? It is because for this reason, God promised that the Messiah, the Messiah is the one who would defeat Satan, who would defeat the dragon. God promised that the Messiah would be born from the Israelites. And the devil did not want this Messiah to be born because he knew that this Messiah, the Son of God, would be his downfall. And so how has he attacked Old Testament saints in the past? Well, mark your place here in Revelation 12. Keep in mind what I just read. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Keep that in your minds. I want you to turn back with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We've turned to Daniel several times. Daniel, especially in the last six chapters of the book of Daniel, last five, six chapters of Daniel, they deal more with uh, future prophecies than do the first uh, six chapters. I'm not saying there's none in it, but the last half of Daniel deals more with the future events. And here in Daniel chapter 8, I want to read verses 9 and 10. Now, I have you turn here rather than me just reading it, because I think it will be more helpful for you to see it in your own text as I make mention of it. And so here in Daniel chapter 8, in verses 9 and 10, it says, Out of one of them. So this is talking about a creature that Daniel had a vision of. So just keep that in mind. And it says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. That would be towards Israel. It grew great even, now get this, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host, and some of the host, and some of the stars, you recall that from Revelation 12, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. 
And so I believe that Revelation 12, 4 is alluding back here to Daniel 8, verses 9 and 10. And this prophecy here that's given in these two verses, this prophecy is about how a king will grow strong. That's what it means when it was growing to the south, to the east, and towards the glorious land. How a king will grow strong and will persecute a great number of God's people. God's people are referred to here in this verse, particularly there in verse 10, as some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw to the ground. It's referring to God's people there, and then notice there, and trampled them. That's a phrase that means that he persecutes, persecutes them. Now these two verses here, in part, have been filled already in our past. So in our time frame, it's in the past. In Daniel's time frame, it would have been in the future. And this prophecy was in part fulfilled with a man named Antiochus. Now, if you're a historian, you might recognize that name. He was the eighth ruler in the Seleucid Empire. After Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided up into his four generals. And so the Seleucid side of all that, he was the eighth ruler in the Seleucid Empire. And he ruled from 175 to 163 B.C. So hundreds of years after Daniel gave this prophecy. Now Antiochus, he gave himself the title Epiphanes. And that title just means manifestation of God. He actually thought that he was God incarnate on the earth. And he wanted people to bow down and to worship before him. And for six years, as history records for us, for six years, he harshly persecuted the Jewish people because part of his empire covered the promised land, the the nation of Israel. And he harshly persecuted God's people. And why did he have such hate for them? I want you to look at verse 24 of Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, verse 24, notice here. So when it says his power, that his is referring back to, when he traces all the way back, it's referring back to verse 9 when it talks about this little horn. That little horn is referring to a king, an, an earthly king. So verse 24 says his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And so this Antiochus, he was, it seems, at least inspired, not indwelt or anything like that, but at least inspired by Satan to hate the Jewish people persecuted them, killed a great number of them. He was inspired by Satan to do this, I believe. But this prophecy that we have here in Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, talking about this little horn, about this one who's going to be inspired by Satan to, to bring down a host of, uh, from heaven and to trample on them. That prophecy will not ultimately be fulfilled until the Antichrist comes. We're going to learn more about him in Revelation chapter 13. But we're introduced to him already in Daniel chapter 8. But why this history lesson from Daniel 8? 
Why go back and take a little bit of time to explain a little bit of what happened to the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament? Well, it shows us that the devil has attacked the Israelites in the past by men like Antiochus. Not just him, but certainly by men like him. And it was Satan's ultimate goal to cut them off so that God's promised Messiah would not come. He tried, but he failed. This is the first failure of the dragon. He tried to prevent the birth of the Messiah, but he failed because just as Job confessed about God saying, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Satan thought he could cut off the people of Israel in the past, but he couldn't. Turn back with me now to Revelation chapter 4. Because in that verse, it's not just talking about the Old Testament saints that Satan has attacked, but notice there in the second half of verse 4, it says, And the dragon stood before the woman. Now, the, the woman here is depicting the people of God, but, but at this point in this chapter, it's depicting the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament people of God, stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Now, that's about to give birth to the Messiah, because again, the Messiah's promised to come through the Israelites. And so he stood before the woman, meaning he wants to oppose her, so that when she gives birth to this child, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Oh, I believe that this is a reference to Satan's failed attempt to kill Jesus when he was just an, inf- an infant. You recall the story, you don't need to turn here, but in Matthew chapter 2. The wise men, when they see the star in the east and and they say, we need to follow this star, a king has been born. And so they take gifts with them, but they don't know exactly where this king, this Messiah is to be born. And so they go to Jerusalem, they go to Herod, who is the king, governor of that area. And so they go to Herod and inquire of him where this king has been born. And you recall Herod talked to some of the priests there in Jerusalem they said well he's to be born in Bethlehem and so the wise men go to Bethlehem and Herod before they leave said come back to me when you find this king and let me know so I can go and worship him but you recall that wasn't Herod's intent to worship this newborn king his intent was to kill this newborn king he wanted no rivals And so God warns the wise men in a dream, and so they don't go back to Herod. They depart and go another route. And Herod realizes these men aren't coming back. And you recall the story there in Matthew 2.16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. He says, I'm going to kill every male child in that area who's two years old and younger. I'm going to wipe him out. Oh, Herod was a tool of Satan in an attempt to have Jesus killed as an infant. But you recall God warned Joseph in a dream, saying, you must leave. Well, that's Satan's second Failed attempt. Now let's look at verses 7 to 12. 
or starting there in verse 5 and then 7 and 12. Here we see the dragon waged war against Christ. And so we see there in verse 5, it says, She gave birth to a male child. So now this is the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. It says, One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, that's speaking of his kingship. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Let me just stop right there. Here we see Satan's first attack was during Jesus' time on earth. Now verse 5 is, is very brief, is it not? This child is born, and then he is ascended to heaven. He is taken to heaven. That's all that we are told of him. He's born, he ascends. It's really just a summary verse of Jesus' life. But it is between those two events that we see two major events where Jesus attacks Jesus. The first of those is when Satan attacked Jesus in the wilderness. Again, you don't need to turn here, but Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. This is the three temptations of Satan upon Jesus for those 40 days, or near the end of those 40 days that he was in the, in the wilderness. There, Jesus, he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan comes to him and tempts Jesus with, with three times. You're hungry, turn these stones to bread. Cast yourself down from the highest point of the temple, and it's said in the Word of God that, that God will, will catch you, that He won't let your foot strike a stone. And then He tells Jesus, look at all this land. I will give it all to you if you just bow down and worship me. Now really the purpose of these temptations in the, in the wilderness were to cause Jesus to, to turn away from trust in His Father and turn to worship Satan. That was His end goal. But do you remember each time Jesus was tempted... And Jesus always responded back with the Word of God. The Word of God says, the Word of God says, the Word of God says. He didn't once bow to Satan. This is Satan's third failed attempt. But you might recall this story a little bit later on in Jesus' life. Maybe about a year and a half, two years after those three temptations, Jesus is walking on the road to Caesarea Philippi with his apostles. This is found in Mark chapter 8. You don't need to turn here. But on their way to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and the disciples say, well, they say you're a prophet. They say you're John the Baptist. Uh, and they all had positive things to say about Jesus. But not one person confessed Jesus to be the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them a very personal question. Who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter says, you are the Christ, which is just a Greek term for the Hebrew term Messiah. You are the Messiah. Basically saying you are the one who is going to crush the head of the dragon. And Jesus begins to tell his apostles that the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer and die but he'll rise again. But Peter, when he was listening to those words of Jesus, 
Peter was thinking to himself, no, 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 no. The Messiah, you're the Messiah. You're not going to die. You're the one who's going to triumph. You're the one who's going to have victory over the enemy. You're not going to die. And so Peter kind of takes Jesus to the side, pulls his arm to the side and, and begins to tell Jesus, you are wrong. And then do you recall Jesus's words to Peter spoken in such a way that all in the crowd would hear Jesus responded saying, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the the things of man. You see, in the voice of Peter, Jesus heard the voice of that dragon saying, you don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to die. Here again, Satan, the dragon is trying to appeal to to, to Jesus' humanness because he is fully man and trying to prey upon that weakness and saying, you don't want to go through that, do you? You don't want to go to the cross and suffer, do you? Are you certain that you're really going to rise from the dead? Satan tried to deter Jesus from going to the cross. But he failed. This is his fourth failure. Jesus sets his eyes towards the cross. Nothing would deter him. I love what Hebrews 12.2 says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now get this. Who for the Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, yes, going to the cross was painful, physically painful for Jesus. Going to the cross meant that he would have to endure God's wrath, his Father's wrath for the sins of the world. But why would Jesus not be deterred? It was for the joy that was set before him. It was for the joy of redeeming God's people. But then notice here in verses 7 to 12. Because I said there in verse 5 that this was Satan's attack upon Jesus while he was on earth. Now I believe, I understand that verses 7 to 12 is Satan's attack on Jesus in heaven. Now that might sound a little strange to say that Satan attacked Jesus in heaven. But I do believe that that is what the text here is telling us. And here's the reason, reasons why. Look there at verses 7 to 9. This really tells us, first of all, of this attack. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown, uh, excuse me, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So what we do know is that there's this war in heaven, and Michael who is one of the angels in heaven. I've mentioned him a couple of Sundays ago. It seems like every time Michael is mentioned, I think all but one time, he is always doing battle. And he is a, he is a, a fierce angel. So here he is fighting against Satan, who is a created angel himself. Satan is not like God by no means. Satan is an angel. And at some time in, in, in the past, Satan and however many other angels followed him in his rebellion against God, 
they rebelled against God. But now we see this dragon, or excuse me, this war taking place once again in heaven. Michael is fighting against him. And they lose. And they're cast out of heaven. They're cast to earth. So why would I say that this battle here in verses 7 to 9 is taking place after the cross, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and not some event that took place way long ago in the past? Well, here's why. First, we are told, we were just told that Jesus ascended into heaven. That's there in verse 5. He was born, he ascended to heaven. That's where he is at. Second, in verses 10 to 12, is a hymn. It's another hymn of heaven, if you will. And this hymn only makes sense if Satan is cast from heaven after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So look at this real quick. Let me read these three verses, verses 10 to 12. John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And so I think that this hymn here only makes sense if Satan and his angels, his fellow angels, are cast out of heaven after the ascension of Jesus because there in verse 10... It tells us about the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christ came when Jesus accomplished redemption on the cross and ascended to heaven. That's when it was inaugurated. Secondly, there in verse 11, when it's talking about that they, the followers of Christ, the followers of of the Lamb, have conquered Him, that is, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb. This is a reference to New Testament saints who have placed their faith in Jesus. And then in verse 12, the devil knows that his time is short. Oh, he's had all this other time before Jesus was born and and during his life. He had all these thousands of years before that to attack God's people, and he did. But now his time is short, and he knows it. Because Jesus has conquered him by means of the cross. And Jesus is now in heaven awaiting his return to earth to cast him into the lake of fire. And so I believe that this war, this battle here that's mentioned in verses 7 to 9, again occurs after Jesus' ascension. Now, when I say that Satan and his angels were in heaven, that might conjure up some questions for you. What does that mean for him? Well, first of all, it does not mean that Satan and his fellow angels were only in heaven during all of this time. Because we know, going back to Genesis chapter 3, there the serpent is tempting Eve on earth. We know that there in Matthew chapter 4, Satan is tempting Jesus on earth. And so when when I say that he's in heaven up until the ascension of Jesus and then he's cast out of heaven, 
Satan and his fellow angels have had what we might call, for lack of a better word, access between earth and heaven. But now that's no more. It does mean that Satan had, up until the time of Jesus' ascension, access to God's heavenly court. We know that from Job chapters 1 and 2. There Satan is amongst all the other angels of God. And Satan's saying, hey, I've been walking the earth. There's this guy, you know, I've been walking around. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan says, Job, he only worships you because you give him stuff. And God says, you can do these things to him. But you can't kill him. There Satan is in heaven and on earth. But now with the ascension of Jesus and now that they've been kicked out of heaven, that he no longer has that access that he once did. And now he is upon earth and he is ramping up his attacks upon God's people. This is what we continually see through the letter of Revelation. The martyrdom of the Christians, of the followers of the Lamb, is only going to increase. It will not decrease. Because the dragon's hatred for the followers of Christ. But he fails at this. He fails at this battle in heaven. Whatever it is, we're not told any more information about it. He fails and he's cast to earth. But then the dragon's third past attack was on the New Testament followers of Christ. That's verses 13 to 16. And here we see in verse 13, it says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And so now he is on earth. Christ has ascended to heaven. He is now thrown to earth. And when it says that he is pursuing pursuing the woman who had given birth to the male child, this is a reference now to the founding of the church there in Acts chapter 2, which was primarily at that time Jewish Christians. And so he turns his attention to her, to the people of God, the church. And we're not going to turn to these verses, but just listen to his attacks upon the early church and more could be named but just listen to these four attacks satan attempted to bring discouragement into the church with the imprisonment and threatening of death upon john and peter in acts chapter 4 satan attempted to bring jealousy into the church with ananias and sapphira in acts chapter 5 satan attempted to bring division into the church with the neglect of widows in acts chapter 6 And Satan attempted to bring fear into the church with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Oh, when you read through the book of Acts, you see these attacks continuously upon the early church. But with every single attack of Satan, God thwarted his plans and protected his people. That's failure number six. And how did God do that? Well, just briefly, look there, verses 14 to 16. I know these verses are probably going to raise more questions in your minds than what I'm about to answer for you. So I recognize that up front. Catch me after service. How's that? It says there in verse 14, it says, but the woman. So 
The dragon has turned his attention now to the woman, to the early church now in the New Testament. But the woman was given, now get this, how was she protected? Well, she was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she, where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent, would pour, the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Well, just briefly, the two wings that are mentioned here, the two wings of the eagle, is really an Old Testament reference to how God always sends relief and protection to his people when they need it the most. The reference there to wilderness, again, in the Old Testament, it's a reference to a place where God would bring His people for protection and for nourishment. When God led His people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, uh, it said that God bore His people up on, on wings uh, of eagles of an eagle and then brought them into the wilderness, a place where they would be protected by Him. Now that phrase there is uh, for a time, times, and half a time that God would do this, I do have to admit that is a difficult phrase as it is found here. If it is a, a general period of time, then it means that God protects His church for the times that are needed. But as we've seen this phrase used before in Revelation and particularly in, uh, in the book of Daniel, that does tend to refer to like the time of the tribulation, or at least for half a period of the tribulation. And if that is what it is referencing, then it's, it's alluding to the church in the tribulation period when God would protect her. But nonetheless, God is protecting her. There in verse 16, when it talks about water pouring out from the serpent's mouth, that's just symbolic of Satan just bringing a deluge of attacks upon God's people. But then with the earth swallowing that flood, I mean, it's just a great visual. Here comes the flood coming towards people, but then the earth just kind of opens up, just like our dry ground in the West Texas opens up when it's dry, but then the earth just opens and the water goes into it and protects God's people. That's probably a reference back to the Red Sea because we're told in Exodus chapter 15, verses 11 and 12, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now get this. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. That's referring back to the Egyptian army when they tried to cross through the Red Sea. And the sea collapsed back down on them and brought their destruction. Well, this is probably a reference back to that. But God protects His church from every attack of Satan. That's the first point of the message. The dragon waged war. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to look to the past. We need to look to the past to see what our enemy has done, but more importantly, to see how faithful our God has been. Because when we're discouraged today, when we think that there is no hope today, it's because we have forgotten who God is. We have forgotten that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we need to take encouragement from these verses that we have just looked at. Verses 4 to 16, God has always protected His people and He will continue to do so because that's what we see now in verse 17. The dragon wages war in the present. Look there at verse 17. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman, that is with the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony 
of Jesus. I believe that this is just a way to refer to future Christians that are going to be born, uh, born, quote-unquote, within the church, those who are converted, followers of Christ throughout all the generations ahead, including our day today. As I alluded to last Sunday, so I'll just do it quickly here this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to know that our enemy is attacking us today. He is attacking the church today. He is attacking First Baptist Canyon today. He is attacking followers of of Christ today. Just think of how many times in the New Testament we are exhorted to, to be reminded of this attack. Ephesians 4 says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. James 4 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. First Peter 5 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to keep our eyes open to the schemes of our enemy because he attacks the church. And how does he do it? Well, he attacks us from the outside. He brings physical persecution upon the church to keep the church silent, saying if you are going to preach the gospel, we will put you to death. We see that taking place around the world today. The church must stand up and be bold and continue to proclaim the gospel. But in our, in our nation today, we don't see so much physical persecution of the church, but we see cultural pressure upon the church. And this is still a satanic attack on the church. And that is the culture tries to make the church to bend to the tolerance of society. How dare you say what we believe is sinful? How dare you say what we believe is right? Keep your mouth shut. You don't want to be seen as backwards, as archaic. And it puts all this pressure upon the church, not threatening physical punishment, but more cultural shunning. And I am surprised, I don't know why I am, I am surprised at how many churches bow to the pressure of culture, saying we want to appease you instead of fear our God. These are attacks of Satan from the outside, but he attacks the church from the inside. He attacks the church with false teaching. First Timothy 4 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Why is it that from the pulpits, that from this pulpit and from all of God's churches, pulpits that we stand so strongly against false teaching is it just because well they got some things wrong we should be a little bit kinder to them no it's because that false teaching is satanic it wants to invade into the church it wants to take the church and weaken the church by getting it away from the truth so false teaching isn't just we got something wrong this is satan's scheme but it's not just false teaching it's false community And what I mean by that is division within the church. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be be factions among you in order that those who are genuine, that is genuine Christians among you, may be recognized. Oh, it is Satan's attempt to get false believers into a church body. 
nice people. They're not worshiping Satan with pentagrams in any rooms or anything like that. They're nice people, polite people for the most part. But they are not followers of the Lamb. And they bring divisions into the church. They begin to bring the us-them mentality within a church to get fights going on, to get schisms going on. And that is not the work of the Spirit of God. That is the work of Satan himself. James says also in, in James chapter 4, he says that type of wisdom is demonic. This is an attack of Satan. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, what are we to do? To stand against this attack of Satan. Let me just quickly give you these three things. First, we need to listen to Jesus. And what I mean by that is I want you to listen to the prayer of Jesus for his church throughout all generations, including ours today. Listen to this. In John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus praying. This is his great high priestly prayer, as it is called. He says, I do not ask, so he's praying to his father, I do not ask that you take them, that is, the church, his followers, I ask that you do not take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, you may wonder if your prayers are heard by God. You may wonder if God is going to answer your prayers, but let us not wonder if God the Father is going to answer and hear the prayer of His Son. And what His Son has just prayed is, God, watch over my church. Protect her from the evil one. And brothers and sisters in Christ, God has, God does, and God will. Listen to the prayer of Jesus. Secondly, look to Jesus. Because when we are going through such times of attacks by Satan, be it from the outside, be it from the inside, we think to ourselves, we're the only ones that have ever gone through this. Poor, pitiful us. But listen to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I read verse 2 earlier, but listen to this verse. Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, saints, Old Testament saints, that have gone before us and we've seen their lives of faith. Now get this, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. It takes endurance to, to live the Christian life. And how do, are we to do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Jesus. He has lived the life for us. We are to look to him. How did he endure the attacks of Satan? How did he persevere throughout his life and look to him as the risen Savior who is seated in heaven? And let us pray to Jesus. Acts 4.29 and there in Acts chapter 4, again, Satan has been attacking the early church. Apostles have been thrown in prison. The apostles have been beaten for their faith, for proclaiming Christ. Listen to Acts 4.29. The church is now gathered together. And what did they pray? Here it is, at least in part. I'm not reading their whole prayer. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Oh, that tells me that this early church was a little scared. They looked at the world around them. They looked at their society and the pressure upon them to not preach the name of Jesus, to depart from the truth of God. And if they don't, there would be severe consequences. And they were just a little bit scared. But instead of bowing to culture, instead of bowing to that pressure, they bowed before God and they said, God, give us boldness to preach. 
Oh, let us listen to Jesus. Let us look to Jesus. Let us pray to Him. Because Jesus will defend His church in our day. This is the seventh failure of Satan. And then lastly, and I'm, I just give this to set us up for next Sunday, so don't worry about any points underneath this. But our third point this morning is the dragon will wage war. That is, in the future, he's going to wage a war against the followers of Christ. And we're going to be introduced to that in Acts, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 13. But brothers and sisters in Christ, even in that future time, Satan will fail. Now, yes, many Christians will be killed by the beast, by the Antichrist, who is empowered by Satan. Many, many, many Christians are going to be executed. But the death of a Christian is not defeat of a Christian. Death is is the reward for following Christ. And I close with this, Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That is the eighth failure of the dragon. Let us pray. Father, just how good it is to be able to look to the past. And in the past, we do see your saints in the Old Testament and in the early pages of the New Testament. We see saints who have lived before us and we have seen how they've been attacked by our enemy, your arch enemy. The dragon, the devil, Satan. Oh God, this world is a fallen world. This world is under His influence. This world that we live in, it is a battleground. But God, how encouraging it is to know that You have protected Your people every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year, and every single generation. Not once has the enemy overcome you. So, God, I pray for us today, for followers of Christ today, as a church today, as First Baptist Canyon. God, I pray that you would strengthen us. God, that we would not bow to the culture around us, that we would not fear the persecution that they can bring. But, Father, that we would fear you only, that we would bow before you only. And we call out with the early church before us, saying, God, give us boldness to preach the name of Jesus in our day. So, Father, use us. Use us as you will to spend our lives as you see fit. For there is nothing in this world that we can give up that is greater than Christ. Oh, He is worthy. Worthy of praise and worthy of our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.